Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Today is Thursday, September 17th, and we have some special guests today. Uh, Michael Horn from InnoSight uh, with um, his guest, Leland Anderson, who is um, at um, <laughs> excuse me, Leland, American Heritage School in Utah. We're certainly glad to have you here with us. It's a little early on a Thursday for our show, but um, this, this was needed because of the schedule uh, conflict that I had. Um, if this is your first time at a Future of Education event, we do want to make sure that you learn about LearnCentral.org, a social network for educators. Uh, LearnCentral.org is sponsored by Illuminate and has a lot of Illuminate's features built in, and you are in an Illuminate session. So please uh, jump over and look at LearnCentral.org where you can use Illuminate for free. Uh, coming up on this show, and also on our Conversations.net show, uh, John Seeley Brown next week. Also Jane Nelson on Parenting 2.0. At the end of the month, Howard Rongold and Joyce Valenza on Librarians, and a very special show. October 6th, Dennis Litke on Big Picture Schools. October 20th, SRI on Educational Social Networking. November 3rd, a very fun show, Tim Westergren from Pandora, the founder of Pandora, is going to talk about uh, music and copyright and new business models. November 10th, Henry Jenkins is scheduled. And then still looking for dates, but committed are Clay Shirky, Doc Searles, Dana Boyd, Tim Magner, James Paul Gee, David Thornburg, and Esther. Uh, lots of fun shows coming up. If this is your first time at Illuminate, we want to quickly let you know how the system works. Uh, you are going to be able to ask questions and uh, participate actively in Q&A. Uh, to do so, you will, uh, when we get to that place, is you can actually raise your hand. And you do that at the bottom of the participant window. Look for a hand icon with a green arrow up. You don't need to hit it now. But when you raise your hand, we'll turn the mic over to you, and you can ask a question. There are other ways to respond during the session. You saw the smiley face and the clapping hand. The confused emoticon will face with the half frown and the thumbs down disapproval. Don't get that often, but if you feel so inclined, you can let us know you're disapproving. You can also send messages in the chat. And uh, just be aware that although it does allow you to send private messages between listeners, uh, those are visible to the moderators. So Michael Leland and I would actually see those. So if you're complaining about us, do be aware that we'll actually see that. Um, to the right is a whiteboard where you're seeing the quick orientation slide. And what I'm going to do now is give you permissions to modify that whiteboard and take us to a map. And you can actually tell us where you're listening from. You can show us by clicking on the little wand with the red arrow, I'm sorry, the red star at the end, and then clicking on the map. Well, so North America wins tonight. Okay, so this is a fun night for me, in part because I've interviewed uh, Michael as a part of uh, talking about his book, Disrupting Class. And uh, Michael is um, Michael, the co-founder and executive director of uh, InnoSight. And InnoSight is doing a series of case studies on online learning. And uh, our hope is that um, he'll share those case studies here at Future of Education. We'll get a chance to drill down, ask questions, and then record these sessions so they serve as a, a good way to publicly share that information. 
So Michael, if I can, I'd like to turn the time over to you to have you introduce uh, yourself again and talk a little bit about Innosight and then let you introduce Leland and start the conversation on this case study of American Heritage School. Great. Well, thank you so much again for the opportunity, Steve. And I think I, I, I would be uh, uh, presumptuous if I came on your show and said I was going to ask all the questions of Leland. So we certainly want you to uh, participate and chime in with everything that's on your mind. And obviously everyone that has joined us tonight uh, from around the country, Canada, and I saw one person saying uh, Antarctica, uh, please, uh, please chime in with your questions as well so we can have a good conversation. Uh, as Steve mentioned, after writing Disrupting Class, or actually in the middle of it, uh, myself along with Clayton Christensen and one of other of our colleagues on the healthcare uh, side uh, formed InnoSight Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank, uh, to continue the research work of applying the theories of disruptive innovation uh, to help solve social sector problems. And uh, in this work, Disrupting Class being the first foray into it in the education, we knew a, that we wanted a platform to continue to talk about these ideas with people and promote what we were seeing. And secondly, we knew that we wouldn't have all the answers by any means. And so we wanted a forum with which we could continue to do research uh, and to probe more deeply so that we could understand the root causes of struggles that schools face, figure out ways to help them innovate, and improve our own theories as well. And so one line of inquiry that we're doing, which is the major stream of research coming out at the moment from Innocide Institute, is around these case studies, which will be on a regular basis. The first one uh, that we published on our website at InnocideInstitute.org uh, is about the Alpine Online School. Alpine is a uh, school district in Utah. It's uh, one of the 100 largest uh, in the United States, but significantly smaller, certainly, uh, than a lot of the districts uh, that you might think of in terms of New York City or Los Angeles. And Leland Anderson came on and joined us, uh, well gosh, it was about a year ago at this point, Leland, and uh, with, with a simple proposition that I'd like to help you out for a few months and uh, see if we can launch this case study endeavor together so that we can start to put together a roadmap around the ideas in disrupting class and also correct where we might have gone wrong. Uh, and so that's what this case study represents is that first endeavor. Uh, Steve just put the link to it so that you can see it. And in addition, uh, in, in addition, you can uh, continue to follow our work at that website and sign up to receive our emails and so forth so that you can have access to it. Now, what I'd like to do is actually, Leland, when, uh, when we first had this idea uh, to do this case study together, we were originally going to look at uh, Utah Electronic High School, and quickly you narrowed in and said, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon, Michael, going in in the districts, and each one has a very different circumstance in which online learning uh, is helping them and allowing them to target non-consumption. So what I'd first uh, love you to talk about with the audience uh, is what about Alpine Online was different and, and, and intrigued you in terms of uh, how they're using online learning and set the stage a little bit for us about how you came to this. Great. Thank you, Michael. The um, way that I came to interview Alpine School District and decide that they were more likely to be a better case study, at least initially, than, than Utah Electronic High School was 
um, meeting with Barry Graff, he told me a little bit about how they had used Utah Electronic High School to service the needs of their high school students, but they didn't feel like there was a, uh, a connection um, as strongly with the district because students were using them independent of the district. They were leaving their high school or visiting with their, their high school counselors to get credit remediation or credit advancement through the Utah Electronic High School without um, talking with the district directly. And the district did not have measurements on who was taking what courses. Those measurements were also not readily available from Utah Electronic High School at the time. And our goal was to, to find where the rubber would meet the road in policy and, and, and roadmaps for moving this forward. And my opinion was that that was in the school district at the school district level. Um, and so I felt like uh, we, could, we could give some good, workable, action item type advice to school districts by looking at what Alpine had done in their elementary and secondary sectors by creating this partnership with Alpine Online. And that's why that decision uh, between us morphed from Utah Electronic High School to the Alpine Online School. Uh, so that we could focus on practical steps, not at the state level, but for district level leaders, of whom there are thousands of thousands in, in all of the 3,000 plus school districts in, Utah, uh, in the United States, who could act on those action items rather than 50 state offices of education that could act on our proposals. That's why the move to Alpine Online. Now, Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's per that's perfect. And and so what I think an interesting thing was is you started to explore Alpine Online and dig into what might a district do uh, to start transforming the school system. Was that you quickly learned that they were actually doing some pretty significant things within the elementary school space, which our book had not really uh, touched upon. Our book was, while alluding to the fact that uh, there was clear paths for online learning to help in the elementary level, didn't have a lot of ideas how that might work. And that's where a lot of uh, your research actually took you. What did you find in that respect? Well, I found that um, with regards to the theories of the book, they were actually more applicable, more easily applicable in the elementary and, on, and secondary, especially the middle school level, because accreditation and graduation credits are not so much of an issue. And because um, those classes can be developed for homeschoolers, which is where an audience is uh, uh, already existing in Utah. There are many, many homeschoolers, of course, in rural, typically rural, more often white, and more often religious populations than in other uh, populations, and those homeschoolers were clamoring for more structure. They were saying this is hard to do, to gather curriculum, to make it work and make it happen. And these parents had been calling Alpine School District telling them, we'd like some help. We hear there are other school districts that are starting to do some online uh, curriculum for homeschoolers. Can you help us too? And um, I think it was particularly fertile uh, research because um, 
these services at any level were a help to where many of the homeschoolers were finding themselves. We are not having to produce the highest quality, top of the line um, products for these people to consume. We are having to provide something that is a start. And those starting points are making their way online and growing better and better in a way that will become disruptive as the book predicts. Uh, and so we're starting with the non-consumers, and that's that's something that you see uh, in the homeschooling market that's that's very fertile in Utah. That's that's really fascinating, uh, Leland, because you what you did then was really identify uh, in very good detail, if I might say so, um, was how this disruption would actually start and what it would look like on the ground. And what I would love uh, for you to talk about. Is is how uh, Alpine Online went about uh, setting up this program, or excuse me, the Alpine School District went about setting up this Alpine Online School. Uh, what, what were their first steps, and, and how did they frame? You know, we really have to get something going here, and how did they find the solution that they would implement? Great. They. Uh, they found that they again were responding to a legitimate need. This had been a recurring pattern to have homeschooling families call and ask, can my child participate in these public school activities at a limited level? And others began to call and say, what curriculum materials do you have that we can use too? And so when they decided to respond to this, it actually came because there was uh, another school district that was doing the same thing. It was Davis School District to the north. They they had also chosen to respond, and um, they responded by using K-12 as a provider, a content provider, uh, and and had used their menu of options, their menu of services to provide for the homeschoolers' requests and their needs. Um, Alpine Online decided they would offer the same service because Davis Online was 50 miles to the north. And the homeschoolers in Utah County, 50 miles to the south, said, you know, not only are they doing online, they're doing some social activities, and we want to participate, but 50 miles is too far for us to travel. Can we please come to your school district, have you create something similar? And, um, and participate here locally. So Mr. Barry Graff, who uh, continues to this day to be in charge of the Alpine Online, and is also in charge of student support services, many other functions for the school district, he decided to take this on. Within six months, he had created an organization that would support, um, support an online school. He did it first by finding where the funding was. He called the State Office of Education and asked whether the school would pay uh, the, the WPU, the Weighted Pupil Unit, which was the state's share of the education funds going to each district at that time. Would they pay those funds, he asked, if homeschoolers were brought into this kind of a, an online school environment? The State Office replied that yes, they would. We are in the business of public education. We're going to support public instruction even if the users have rejected the primary form of our public schools. We will we'll provide some other format for them to, to become educated and to support that effort. And so 
with money in their pockets or money uh, available, they said that's a green light. Let's let's get something going. And they, within six months, were able to to set up a system that included two teachers initially, two full-time teachers, and uh, a half-time support secretary who was able to handle the curriculum orderings for these um, then approximately 200 uh, homeschooling children who would like to who, who signed up once advertised to participate in this program. And um, they, they selected, of course, from the menu of items that was available through uh, K-12. That's, that's an in-depth topic, but in, in an overview, K-12 has many services that they can provide and do provide some of which I'm sure our listeners are aware of in, in depth. And Alpine was able to select those that they were able to afford and, and get really a full-fledged, full menu of course offerings available from K to 8 for these 200 plus initial, um, approximately 200 initial homeschool students. What's just fast? So that's how they moved quickly. Yeah, no, sorry, keep, keep, keep going, Leland. So with a degree, so, so by basically hiring the people to do it, having the vision to say, let's look at K-12's menu, let's have someone who can help coordinate this, a half-time secretary, and two teachers who will offer support to the families in implementing this online curriculum, they were able to get up a K-12 curriculum and make it available. Uh, six months later, to to 200, approximately 200 uh, homeschool students. That's quite a story, and what's, there's, a, there's a couple strands that really strikes me when you tell it. One was that they got it up and running in six months, which is uh, pre pretty impressive for for something of that nature. And and, and secondly, uh, how affordable it was to serve these students uh, with just the state per pupil funds. Uh, which is about half of what uh, a student within the normal uh, school system would have received because you would have also had the district funds. Uh, it's, it's, it's just really, really interesting in that regard. It really strikes me. There's an interesting question that someone asked uh, in the audience, which was, did this innovative approach actually motivate more families in the district to homeschool their children? Do you, do you have any read on that? Well, it's very difficult for um, us to know exactly how it's uh, how it has affected in terms of statistical numbers, but we do know that in Alpine School District, this has been promoted by neighbors and homeschool groups, moms who homeschool tell their friends, and so yes, it has grown, and it has grown as a method not just within Alpine School District, but across the state. There are other districts who are now doing exactly what Alpine School District is doing, and they are fully staffed or close to, not fully staffed rather, but uh, close to full enrollment capacities. Um, and Utah Virtual Academy, which is a state charter school run by, administrative by K-12, is also at near capacity of 500 students. And so we've seen that um, the approach is, is catching on. Enrollment statewide has continued to increase, and that seems to suggest that, um, that there is growing popularity for this.
That's really interesting. Now, qu a question uh, for you that Steve uh, highlighted. L let's dig into the uh, cost element of this a little bit more. I made a statement that they basically were able to fund the whole thing with just the state for people funds and maybe some, uh, I guess, some time that was paid through other things uh, coming out of uh, Barry Graff and so forth. But, but can you give us a bigger picture of, or, or a more detailed picture of what that cost looked like, why it was what it was, uh, and, and how they were able to do that at, at a price point that, the, as the case says, uh, it just seems astounding, about $2,500 per student. Right. Well, we have to remember that these costs are historical costs, and the cost, uh, the present value of these costs would be a little higher. Um, if you look in the case study itself, it outlines a total materials, monthly and upfront fees of actually less than $2,500. At the time, it was about $1,500 just for the materials and the access fees. These were materials uh, fees for textbooks that would be sent, um, materials fees for the manipulatives that would be sent. Uh, for, for, for math, they had counting blocks. For science, they had scales and magnifying glasses. They had books for each of these in an online portal. And those, of course, were some of the, the fees, but certainly less than $1,200 or, or $1,500 worth. Um, and and $2,500 was sufficient at the time to pay for those materials as well as a teacher, a um, the teacher's laptop and internet connection, and the teacher's cell phone even, uh, so that the teacher could connect with their students on a monthly or weekly basis, a weekly basis with the family, and and uh, that was sometimes through mail or e well not mail but email or phone conversations, and uh, was often through even Illuminate sessions like we're doing today. Those were the fees that were encapsulated in $2,500. Um, how could it be done for $2,500? Well, Alpine School District chose not to purchase administrative services from, from, from K-12. That's one way that they kept the cost down. They decided to administer it themselves. This was Mr. Barry Graff and Michelle Zwick, his, his secretary who was hired to help fulfill the ordering, the requirements, the, the registrations of students, the advertising, all of the enrollment uh, procedures and day-to-day -day operations. The teachers were hired. They were paid full salary, full benefits for their years uh, with the district, and were commissioned to, to reach out to the families, to support them in their instruction, and then, of course, to coordinate and loop back with, the, with Mr. Graff and Mrs. Wick. Uh, to to um, meet the needs of the students. Sometimes the special education needs were were just eaten by the district in an unaccounted way, um, meaning that uh, if the student who was registered for Alpine Online lived in a different district, they might be brought in, but more typically they would be sent to their home district, their local school, and that local school district would service the, the students' needs um, for making a, a, uh, an IEP. This happened only with a few students because, of course, most homeschool uh, families, or many homeschool families, um, prefer to 
to uh, to avoid extra labels for their children. And in some cases, IEPs were given. In other cases, they were not. Um, but it, it did not end up being a material cost to the to the school district. The school district didn't have to worry about cafeterias and busing and lunches and brick and mortar. Those types of costs, of course, are are not present. So when you have materials costs of approximately $1,500 per year per student, and for the other thousand, you can fund the teacher by giving the teacher about 75 students to to look over. You've got $75,000 approximately to pay that teacher, that teacher's benefits, to pay the administrative secretary, and um, and to 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 pay for Illuminate subscriptions and laptops and cell phones, and and still uh, break even. This is not a, a profit-making proposition in Utah. Uh, but it was a break-even proposition, and it was serving students that had never been served before. And so that's uh, that's a, that's how the money kind of breaks out. I do want to highlight that Utah has historically been 49th and 50th in the nation in per pupil spending uh, for state funds on state funds. Uh, the family size in Utah tends to be larger than other states in the, in the nation. Uh, and that's one of the reasons for that. Nevertheless, other states often fund at much higher than $2,500 per student. Connecticut, New York are among the highest, and they're up in the $11,000, dollars $13,000 range per student per year. So you can imagine that something like this might be, be workable in states other than Utah, the lowest funding state of any state in the nation. That, that, that's fascinating, a glimpse into uh, several elements of the cost, and, and I'd encourage everyone uh, on this to, to look back into the case study because I think Leland does an excellent job. Uh, he just did an excellent job capturing a lot of that right now in the dialogue, uh, but really laying it out there so the costs are very transparent, which I know as someone who's been studying uh, this for now several years, it, it's often hard to figure out what the costs are actually going to. And, and remarkably transparent, I think, so we can figure out uh, what would make sense for different circumstances and how those costs might change. Uh, th there's some interesting points here uh, th that I think come out of it, one of which, Leland, I, I, I want to hone in on, which is that you mentioned uh, not all of this work is actually online, um, which I thought was fascinating and, and to me suggested that really this is more of a platform shift and some things may on be online, uh, some things may not be. That's right. You know, K-12 says that they believe in books and computers and dirt on their website, which means that, of course, we can learn with hands-on activities and reading from books. We're not doing away with those, and particularly not in the younger grades. But you'll notice in their curriculum as you study it, uh, and become more familiar with it, that it does move more and more online in the upper grades. Um, it moves more and more toward the interactive flash-based activities, consuming more and more of, of the instruction. And um, in the younger grades, it's, it's, it's more books. It includes more picture books, great picture books, wonderful workbooks, something to hold in your hand, the heft of a book that, that you 
that, that you need, especially in those earlier years, to make the learning um, uh, so real and, and to give both the parent and the child ownership. That's really helpful. I think that was fascinating to me. Um, and then we're seeing some. Uh, some uh, things uh, come out of the chat uh, session as well. One of which um, I think is sort of emerging as a subtext from some of the people asking, well, could they learn in different ways? Are there different paths? And one of the things that I found most fascinating about the case is, is when you delved, Leland, into the uh, parts about Rosetta Stone uh, and, and how they set up an option there to give different foreign language options. They did something with Saxon math to set up a math option. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe elaborate a little bit uh, outside of the case about how you see this evolving? You know, right now it's through K12 Inc., which is an impressive company out of Virginia. But how might this uh, roll out over time uh, as a portfolio or a portal? Great, great questions. Well, we we know that of course the computer does a great job of, of giving us access to many different forms of curriculum and helping us track them, format them, you know, calculate uh, the accountability even. And the way that let me talk first to the first question, Alpine Online, of course, they wanted to give their students choices. They wanted to, to let them have language foreign language choices. And Rosetta Stone, of course, has 30 foreign language choices for a very reasonable fee. In fact, when you're buying bulk licenses, they're very, very low cost. Uh, they're not the $299 that you would pay for in the airport. They're as low as $75 or, or, or less per student for a year-long subscription to any of these 30 languages, from Tagalog to, to Hindi to Hebrew to Arabic and, and Mandarin. So that allows the student to choose what language they'd like to spend an entire year learning that language, even to switch the language once if they'd like to, and to do that with the ease of an online uh, media-rich environment that shows pictures and, and sounds and speaks to you and lets you speak back, that tracks your progress, and that allows a teacher, if the district hires one, to, to, to look and monitor your progress, to give you grades that are automatically calculated so quickly um, by the computer. It's a fascinating and wonderful, wonderfully uh, designed program. Alpine Online decided to offer that. That, that allowed students to take more than the, the, the options that were available through K-12. K-12 had a nice math program. Many of the parents loved it. Other homeschool parents preferred Saxon math which also has some online resources, and of course textbooks. And so the school decided to offer that as another menu item, not just the K-12 menu, but the American or the Alpine School District menu that, that they were creating that was broader than K-12. And that's the trend that we'll see in the future, is that school districts and other entities, other independent schools will create their own menu of options. They will eclectically gather from providers such as K-12, such as Apex Learning, such as Sylvan Learning and Kaplan, and gather their online resources, organize them through a platform, uh, a learning management system, and there are many great ones there, 
to administer those courses to students, um, still providing a teacher that helps helps uh, provide some accountability and the human touch and the motivation to, to do it and, and the help to say, I know there's someone who can help me make the mental leaps that I can't make by myself, but having a much broader menu than probably any one company right now provides by themselves. That's what I see on the horizon. I know of schools that are doing this now that are that are that are trying to broaden their menu um, to serve as many students as widely as possible, and they're unifying it through a through some kind of a learning management system, one such as Agilex, uh, Brain Honey, and and others like it that uh, allow for some course course management from a variety of sources. Now, that's really interesting, and I imagine, Steve, that's actually pretty interesting to you as well, uh, simply because uh, what Leland just painted there is a way that open education resources actually could gradually uh, uh, evolve uh, in, into being in wide use through this uh, platform shift through the learning management system, such as Agilix Brain Honey or an Acuity or some other such next-gen uh, learning management system. So I think that's that's very interesting, Leland, what you just painted out there, uh, and how you think about quality, obviously, in that um, and so forth are some significant questions, I imagine. Uh, but but clearly, this actually presents a path to start starting to realize uh, some of those open education resources and so forth. Now, what what I what I'd like to try to do is just jump in for a few questions here uh, that have piled up a little bit. Some people have been asking, you know, what does this do from a pedagogical standpoint? Uh, has there been significant change uh, to the pedagogical model itself to some of these students? What does this require of teachers? Uh, and let's let's start there. What, what does a teacher's life look like, and are there some pedagogical shifts happening, or could there be? Well, I think there are some pedagogical pedagogical shifts. And, um, but, but I think at the core of instruction, we find similar elements that are going to remain the same. Teachers are, in essence, uh, task givers and task managers. They, they stand in relationship to students and in relationship to the content in a way that the student doesn't stand in relationship to the content on their own. If you just give students a fancy apparatus, a fancy computer, um, then that's independent study. And this is not taking the teacher out of the picture. The teacher, in relationship with the student and the content, can help the student make mental leaps and, and connections and interact with the content in a way that the student cannot possibly do by themselves. The, the good solid tasks that Robert Marzano points out as being the most effective, the most fruitful tasks of comparing and contrasting, of summarizing and note taking, of being able to do practice and homework, uh, compare, you know, cause and effect relationships, those are still the right types of tasks and questions to be asked. And they will need to be asked in a way that in many cases is, is more regimented than what we have currently going on in classrooms today where teachers can shoot from the hip. You might have teachers who have to plan a little more carefully the questions, the essays that are going to be written, uh, may have to manage the 
the, the um, online resources that are there and be familiar with them so that they can order the instruction and help set up the interactions again in a way that is more fruitful than an independent study uh, that, that, that is still a guided instructional experience. And so I think the, platform, the, the shift in pedagogy is not so much a shift of the tasks, but it's the shift in the requirement of the teacher to know the technology well enough to, of course, overcome technical difficulties and to be able to give the meaningful assignments that require students to do those kinds of thoughtful, higher order thinking tasks of understanding comparison and contrast, cause and effect, classification and division, chronologies, and, and, and how-tos, and all of those um, uh, logical fallacies and logical relationships that, that we see in good instruction anyway. They're just going to have it be more transparent on the web to the students and to their parents about whether or not you know, they are, are, are planful teachers and have done have created a masterful lesson plan. That is going to become more transparent. So I think it will help teachers and online platforms raise the quality of their instruction overall. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, that's that's extremely helpful, I think. I want to jump as well, uh, and, and hopefully that addresses one of Steve's questions as well. But one one question uh, in terms of can you talk about one question that just came up actually is comparing the Agilix Brain Honey model or the Acuity model uh, to Moodle, which a lot of people will be familiar as an open source platform uh, for course management. Uh, do you have some experience that you might uh, shed some light there on, on, on some of those differences? So the question is, can contrast Moodle with Agilix? That's right, yeah. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. I, I, I don't have enough experience with Moodle to, um, to, to, to contrast it with Agilix. I understand that, well, actually I don't. I, I better just uh, stop okay. there. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. Let me, let me try to give a crack for some of the people that are asking about Moodle versus Agilix, BrainHoney, or Acuity. Uh, Acuity and BrainHoney are designed um, not to be not as a course management system per se, uh, in, in the way that a Blackboard would be. So whereas Moodle would, you would think of as an open source Blackboard, I think um, the Acuity is, is, for example, is built to be more like an iTunes uh, platform. They give away the uh, learning management system for free. They give away the student information system for free. They give away the gradebook for free, and then they allow you. Uh, basically to look at the curriculum objective and they'll show you, hey, these 10 content pieces of content or these 10 learning opportunities uh, will address this curriculum standard and they'll just take a little bit of a royalty off the top if, if, if you're paying for it. Uh, but you could e easily go to Florida Virtual School or K-12 for one piece. You could go to something that's been home built. Uh, you could go to the Discovery Channel's free and open uh, group of educational resources. Uh, to grab down that content, and Brain Honey is much the same way, and they have analytics built in over time um, to to uh, mic to uh, uh, better match the pieces of content and so forth with the student, and actually gives the students a lot of autonomy. So I saw the iTunes U thing just come up. There's a lot of similarities, except it's not a lecture, right? It's uh, 
it's it's much more broken down into modules. It aligns to uh, the curriculum standards that we need to address as educators and so forth. And it's I, I envision it as sort of that user network coming up underneath the Florida Virtual School. So it's very different in that way um, uh, than just simple course management system. It's really a next gen system beyond it. Not to say it won't go open source at some point, but if the data is really robust to help out, uh, I think that's It'll, it'll be very different. It's built for a K-12 audience in mind as opposed to built for higher ed and bringing it down. Um, and it's built for an online world. Uh, so it's a very different, or a hybrid world, but it's built with very different assumptions than Blackboard was originally, as I understand it. Uh, so that just gives a quick uh, feel there. What I want to jump to, um, Leland, off of that, is uh, there are a couple questions about where, the, where these students uh, where the homeschool families have they been asking for opportunities to participate in um, in, in actual classrooms uh, or, or enter the actual schools? And secondly, in the K-12 curriculum, are there opportunities, uh, or in the Alpine Online School, are there opportunities for students to interact with other students, not just extracurricularly, but also in the heart of the curriculum? Great. I saw those questions come up on the board as well. And the answers are um, yes to the second one. And let me talk about the second first, and then I'll have you remind me about the first question. The, the participation occurs in classrooms like Illuminate, where students are allowed to chat and raise their hand just as you're doing today. They're allowed to discuss, uh, because all of them have the phone, the audio privilege, of talking with the teacher back and forth. And in some cases, in these online web meeting places like Illuminate, like GoToMeeting, like VoxWire, like DimDim, um, you have these opportunities, or WebCTs and other, to, to set up rooms where they can chat with each other or where they can talk to each other. Not all of those web conferencing softwares do that yet. Some of them do, and you can do little group work discussions. Um, I think what happens, uh, or, or the trend that I see coming forward more, is an office hour type approach, where the teacher leads a meaningful discussion with carefully crafted questions in a periodic, regular, online web class, a live web class, or they have office hours, well I should say and or, they have office hours with each student individually or with small groups where they're able then to again provide some tutoring and mentoring and touch base with the student one-on-one. -on -one. And in that kind of participation, there is great um, there's great growth. Finally, of course, these online meeting places allow students to become presenters, to become teachers. In GoToMeeting, you just at the click of a button change the presenter to one of the students in the classroom. Their screen pops up. They give their PowerPoint presentation. They, they uh, take control and, and lead the discussion. And that kind of participation, those kind of tasks of teaching the, each other as students is, is very meaningful. It's even more meaningful than the chat. And so again, there, there are synchronous resources and there are asynchronous resources. Synchronous being those that require the students to log in at the same time, asynchronous being alone, and, and kind of working your way through the content at your own time, any place, any pace. And I think there's value in a place for both. 
and uh, the participation becomes particularly meaningful in the synchronous uh, environment, um, whether that's one-on-one -on -one with an instructor or whether that's in a whole group. Uh, illuminate, dim, dim, uh, box wire type session. Perfect. And then the first question uh, that that really gives a rich feel for what this interaction may look like over time. Something I'd jump in and add is you actually may ultimately have um, not just one teacher with the office hours, but actually, you know, tons of teachers who are available to help in and dive in and be in discussions and offer different talents and so forth, and, and a really open model, which I think would be very cool as you could start to leverage uh, lots of knowledge in different ways from all parts of the world. Uh, that may be a little bit further off, but some of the companies are pioneering some ways to think about that in, in, in very different ways of what the teacher's role. The other question, I guess, I right. yeah. The other question, I guess, I, that that we wanted to go to was: Are some of the homeschooling families actually asking for their students to start participating in the bricks and mortar uh, classroom now? Um, some do. There tends to be a trend that as the student gets older, mom and dad no longer are experts in the subject matter, and the student goes off to public school or to some other school for part of the day, at least for a select menu, a select, a select subject matters. I don't see that happening in the earlier years near as much. Though I do mention in the case, and it is true that there are many who want a blended model. They want to go to the brick and mortar school for orchestra, for maybe for PE, or for their drama class because that's something that, that is done better in the brick and mortar school often. Or, and then they stay home and they do the English online and the history and the math. And maybe they, they do call the math teacher, again, as a resource. Well, can you help us learn how to teach my son long division? And um, so there is a blended model approach that many of the homeschoolers are taking. Uh, I, I don't know the trend of whether more are doing that or, or not. I, I think Barry Graff said there's a slight increase in that, but it's um, you know it just depends on the family and their circumstances. That, that's really helpful. And then uh, I'm going to open it up for a couple people to take the mic uh, themselves and ask you some questions, Leland. But before I do, there was a question earlier about the test results and uh, if we or others are following this longitudinally. And I guess I'll make a point and then I'll, I'll kick it to you to talk about what you actually saw. Uh, but I think one of our things is we're not experts in that particular area, so we've tried to stay a little bit away outside of our core. And Leland, I think, in the case, does an excellent job of sketching out what is known about the test results, and then also talking about how you actually can't conclude certain things because the longitudinal studies have not been done, and sketching out some really robust areas that we really hope researchers uh, will take the mantle of. Uh, going forward, so we'll actually learn a lot more. I'll, I'll kick it to you, Elon, to elaborate on that, though. That's right. You know, the the numbers here are too small in each grade to give a lot of credibility um, to 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 the numbers that you see in the case. Generally speaking, those numbers came in with um, approximately the same performance level, but for some of these students, this was their first year. We don't know what the value added was 
from the beginning of the year. There is no pre-test, no post-test. And some of these students are just now in their second or third year. And so the track value added is, is, um, is difficult at best. It's also uh, something that requires larger sample sizes than what we have in this small school. Yes, there are 200 to 300 to 350 students in the school. But their tests are spread out across, again, eight and nine, uh, approximately eight grades. You have third graders, fifth graders, eighth graders taking these tests. You actually have all levels of graders taking it, uh, taking various tests, or most of them. And, um, and, and so you have sample sizes of 20 or 15 or or even as few as 10 in some cases. It's just not a good sample size. The other attribute here is to, to be careful about where their history is. Again, some of them haven't been in school for a while and may appear to start low, but just because they are starting late, not because the school isn't doing a good job or the student is unintelligent in some unmalleable way. There are some students who are staying at home and doing homeschooling because their parents feel like they're being lost in the, in the masses at public schools. They're, they do have special needs, and the parent wants to attend to those. And so you, you just have a range of students who are at home. And some of them do have special education-like needs that, that are being filled at home. So I guess I just caution that the sample sizes are and the, uh, the sample sizes are too small, and that it's too early to tell, and there's much more research that needs to be done. But the parents are very pleased, and that is also an important piece of data. Far and wide, every parent I spoke to, and I spoke with many, said, we like it. We are grateful for it. It's helping us. We're doing a better job. And my son's and daughter's learning are increasing and, and accelerating. That counts for something. And that, that's, that's very helpful. Now, uh, what I'm going to do is open it up, and I'll let Steve describe how, how we'll do that. But first, uh, just to give people an idea of what's coming down the road from Insight Institute, we've got a number of case studies that we're working on right now. And we'll, uh, the next one will be published uh, October 5th. Uh, it'll be about the Florida Virtual School, which we're very excited about, an interesting model uh, that has managed to scale to the point that they're touching the lives of roughly 70,000, 80,000 students a year just within Florida at the moment. Uh, so, so a very interesting case study around a policy, a set of policies put in place. Some other case studies uh, will revolve around how Wichita School District uh, set up an alternative school for students who had dropped out, as well as credit recovery programs for students who were uh, at risk. Uh, we have a, a case study about how three school districts have used uh, APEX learning uh, in those circumstances. We have another one under works uh, about Chicago Boys Academy, uh, which is a hybrid model within Chicago. Uh, so we wanted to highlight an urban environment. Uh, some other cases that we'll extend out to over time revolve around what does professional development look like in this new world? What does the new job of the online teacher look like? And we'll hone in a lot more there. And then we'll also dive into this learning management system question about how does it bring about this user network, or what Steve would call the open education resources uh, over time, which is an area in which I'm very interested uh, because of its potential to really drive mass customization 
uh, over time, but I think we need to learn a lot more about how that might uh, evolve. So those are some of the things that are coming down the pipeline that you can look for. And I guess I'd say that one of the things that is nice about Leland's case is it's not cheerleading. Uh, it points out uh, some things that they've done well and analyzes them through our theories, but also will say, uh, honestly, this is what happened, and it may or may not apply to your circumstance. It may be different, or you also may conclude this was not the right way to go. Uh, and so I think we want to be very honest about that and paint it out there so that we can all get a crisp and clearer picture over time of how to uh, approach this new world as it evolves. I'm going to uh, be quiet for a second and let Steve uh, describe to you how you can grab the mic and uh, pose a question or two to Leland before we have to wrap up. Steve? Okay, thanks Michael and thanks Lynn so far. It's been fascinating. Uh, I'm going to ask the members of the audience actually to clap here at this stage to let Michael know that we are very interested in continuing to hear about these case studies. So sure hope that you'll consider coming back and doing this again for us. Okay, so to ask a question now, uh, you would raise your hand, which is the hand icon with the green up arrow, and then grab the mic. And uh, it would be fun to hear some of your voices. You can also ask a question in the chat, and um, Michael will field those and help make sure they get answered. So I virtual school, I've given you the mic. I'm thinking that was your intention to raise your hand. If it wasn't, you can lower your hand with that same icon. But if it was, you can go ahead and click on the microphone button in the audio area and turn your mic on and ask your question. Okay, so I, uh, I virtual school, I just saw you actually turn your mic off. So if you look below the participant box, down in the audio area, you'll see a place where you actually click to turn the mic on. I'm hoping that's what you want to do. In the meantime, uh, Michael, do you want to address Peggy's question? Can students participate in selected courses to fill in the gaps in their learning without being a full-time student in the online school? Well, I'll kick that to Leland in this particular circumstance. I'll answer the general question, which is when we wrote the book, that's actually one of the biggest areas uh, we saw as for potential to online learning to start helping, which was uh, when a, a student couldn't get a course or, was, or had failed a course or something like that uh, to jump on the online learning. And as I'm traveling around the country, uh, something that I've been blown away by in a, in a few districts is they're starting to use online learning for unit recovery. So as soon as a student struggles, uh, forget about forcing them to go through you know, a, a, just a, a slog of a time when they're already behind. Here, let, let us move you out already uh, in, into this online module so you can catch up at your pace in the way you learn, and then we'll bring you back into the class as it makes sense. Uh, which is a really new way to think about uh, non-consumption and uh, starting these online courses. So hopefully that answers some of the national context. I'll kick it to Leland uh, for the um, general. And Peggy, you're right, advancement actually is a critical area where it's used as well. So, uh, and I, I think as we see the hits to gifted and talented programs coming on uh, right now, you know, we really ought to be using more imagination and, and, and using these uh, uh, in, in that way to address that. Uh, Leland, I'm going to kick it to you on the Alpine specific question there. Would you repeat it for me, Michael? Absolutely. The question is, even if you weren't homeschooled uh, and receiving the, uh, or enrolled in Alpine online, are there other ways, if you're in the district, to take advantage of these services that Alpine is contracted for, or what would you 
you do if you had fallen behind in a course, uh, is there or, or failed a course? What, what what options are available to you if it's not Alpine Online? Great. Um, well, Alpine School District has uh, also worked with uh, not just Alpine on, Online. Alpine Online is a K to eight program, but again, in high school, they do use Utah's Electronic High School, which allows students to go through as quickly as possible any course that they need to to take. Any a full range of high school courses uh, for credit re recovery or for credit advancement. And that's how it would happen. In the elementary grades, Alpine Online is an option. Uh, of course, credits are not really an issue for advancement. Um, it's, it's, you know, a high school cannot be accredited if they're, if they're not having the students fulfill certain requirements toward the diploma. But in an elementary and in a middle school, that's not so much an issue. And there just isn't a good sense of data yet on parents who are uh, doing anything more than um, their own initiative to make their students make up that work with the teacher directly or perhaps through a program like Alpine Online. But the, there, there aren't a lot of cases of that right now that I'm aware of. That's great. I, Steve, I think we're just hitting up about uh, at the end of our time together. But uh, okay, that's right. So uh, I just want to thank everyone. Uh, and, and give Leland a round of applause, please. Uh, Leland, thank you so much for the work you've done uh, on this case study and the work you've done with us. We really appreciate it. And you can hear the uh, group's appreciation for it as well. Uh, this was a really great session. And I want to thank Steve for the opportunity uh, to talk with all of you as these case studies unroll at first once every two months, but with increasing frequency, hopefully, uh, so that we can continue to think together as a community. Uh, about how we can make these productive, uh, 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 productive innovations to benefit all of our students in this country. Uh, to Maria's point, if you go to that link that I provided, scroll all the way down, uh, and then there is a uh, thing that says sign up for our education email list today, and that's where you can get access to it. There's also an RSS feed which will give you access to our blog. And of course, we continue to participate with Steve. So thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. And thank you for being such a great audience with such great uh, dialogue and questions. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, right. Leland. Thank you so much. Oh, sorry. I talked right over you, Leland. Thank you so much. Michael, you're a natural. This is a great environment for you. I, I don't even need to be here, but I will to support you. So we will look forward to future events. Um, Please do remember we've got some other fun events coming up thanks to Learn Central and Illuminate. There's our quick schedule. Um, next week, uh, John C. Brown and Jane Nelson should be a lot of fun. Thanks for attending today. Thanks, Leland. Thanks, Michael. We'll go ahead and close out. You can stay in the room for a few more minutes if you have some questions. Uh, otherwise, please do exit the program. That's what starts the recording, the recording to process. Thanks again, everybody. And Leland, you're welcome just to hang up when you're done. Oh, great. Thank you, Steve. This has been a wonderful experience. I appreciate it. You did a terrific job. Um, privilege to have you on. So Darius, we actually didn't have any slides, but the recordings will be up by tomorrow at futureofeducation.com. 
Uh, you'll see the link directly for the session. It'll be both a full Luminate recording, an audio recording, a uh, portable video recording, and the chat log. Um, so you'll have options there. And Peggy, thanks for reminding me about the survey. I did forget to say anything, but it does pop up, and I hope people will fill it out. Thanks for coming, Peggy. Thanks, everybody else, for being here, and especially Michael. Uh, terrific job. This is a great platform for you.